we're a long way off from being able to go back to any kind of normal. And the normal was a crisis. The normal was itself not working. Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast series from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can rebuild a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, the forum assembled leading voices from around the globe to discuss how to reset the social contract in a world where millions of people have lost their jobs and faith in democracy is under extreme pressure. 1.3 billion employees and workers impacted by COVID. That's almost half of the global workforce. 100 million people will enter into extreme poverty this year due to COVID-19. Among the guests, former US Secretary of State John Kerry. It's not that solutions aren't there. It's not that we don't have the capacity. We just don't have the will. It has to exceed what we did in the Sputnik years. It has to exceed the space race. It has to exceed the military race. The wide-ranging discussion looked at ways to address society's failure so far to work well for minorities and women. Suddenly, we're having to reinvent the workplace. Everybody expects us to change that, not to go back to what it was. And those most excited about that change are actually the women. After the global crisis, a global opportunity. This is The Great Reset from the World Economic Forum. Hello and welcome to Geneva and the World Economic Forum. My name is Adrian Monk. I'm joined here in the studio by my colleague Sadia Zahidi and by the president of the World Economic Forum, Berger Brenda. 1.3 billion employees and workers all over the world are now impacted by COVID. That's almost half of the global workforce. We know that 100 million people probably will enter into extreme poverty this year due to COVID-19. We're very pleased that we have former Secretary of State John Kerry. When you see all the challenges, how do you see this playing out in the year to come? The answer to your question depends on a lot of things. First of all, we have to have the definition of reset correctly. Reset, we can't think of it in terms of sort of pushing a button and going back to the way things were. And there are a lot of reasons for that, most, most prominently that we're a long way off from being able to go back to any kind of normal. And the normal was a crisis. The normal was itself not working. What's happened is COVID has, has accelerated everything. And so all the forces and pressures that were pushing us into crisis over the social contract are now exacerbated and exacerbated at a time where the world is in many ways coming apart. What we now understand is there are huge tasks unmet by all of our countries. And so this is going to require probably the greatest moment of governance coming together to address concerns that have been the hangover of globalization, the inequity that has been created globally, I mean, horrendous here in our country, but bad everywhere. Not enough people are talking about the benefit of what came from what the world did post-World War II. We put together the international financial institutions. We created NATO. We created alliances. We came to nuclear agreements, ultimately reduced threats and built a set of values and standards by which we all agreed it was worth expending our energy. We didn't just create a chemical weapons convention after World War I because it was a nice thing to do. We did it because we decided that we weren't going to use chemical weapons. And after World War II, we decided we didn't want to use nuclear weapons. You can run a host of these standards we put in place from Bretton Woods, the international financial institutions, etc. But right now we have people running amok 
literally renegade nations disregarding those standards and those values. We have a competition with China and Russia and other people for the new narrative that, that authoritarianism is better than democracy because it's a way to get things done faster. And of course, democracy is failing in enough places that it is not a great counterpoint. So I can't think of a moment where it has been more critical for governance to have leadership that is bringing, convening people. Government is going to make all the decisions that, that we need to make. But government is the great convener. Witness HIV, Ebola, other things that we did prove we could respond to. But what we never did in those responses, and in all of the periods since World War II, is adequately address the social contract, the enfranchisement of human beings around the world to be able to participate in a world that they, because of smartphones, can now see everywhere, but not participate in. That is a recipe for revolution, for anarchy. It is a recipe for the very growth of, of neo-populism, nationalistic populism that we see in various countries in Europe and elsewhere which is being exploited. And it's being exploited because the social contract is failing in places. And so people are ripe to believe through demagogues that there's a different solution. And so this is a big moment. And the World Economic Forum, the, the CEO capacity of the World Economic Forum is gonna to have to really play a front and center role in defining the reset in a way that nobody misinterprets it as just taking us back to where we were, but preparing us to be able to deal with global climate change, with this massive inequity through globalization, through the failure of the contract to protect a disadvantaged people, all of which is being laid bare as a consequence of COVID. And in addition, in our country, as a consequence of some police actions that have lit a fuse uh, with the younger generation, and I think is gonna produce uh, enormous social transformation in our country. Where would you see opportunities, even in the polarized world, to find common solutions? I'm an optimist, and I really am optimistic about our capacity to solve these problems. It's not that solutions aren't there. It's not that we don't have the capacity, we just don't have the will. And we haven't been offered these choices. So I think there are a host of things on which we can cooperate, which make a world of difference. One, we can clearly cooperate on trade. I think that the current administration began with a tariff war. No one's ever won a trade war. So we have to get back to some rules and structure, and I think we could do that very quickly. Secondly, cyber. Cyber is very dangerous, much more dangerous in many ways than other weapons, more likely to be used and tested. It already is on a daily basis in thousands of places. We started in, in the Obama-Biden administration to get a set of rules with the Chinese on that. We have to pick up where we left off and we have to put together the rules of the road, an international treaty, not unlike the nuclear agreements where we tamed weaponry and we've got to tame that. Secondly, nuclear has got to be put back into the box. And I think that can be done. Thirdly, we've got to deal with climate change. Climate change is the biggest single climate crisis, not change, is the biggest single economic opportunity the world has ever had. We have 4.5 billion users of energy today. We're going up to 9 billion in the course of the next 30 years. We have the ability to go to nine. We have a billion people who don't even have electricity. 
There's a monumental set of opportunities in building infrastructure, in, in pushing the technology curve, which may well be the solution through negative emissions technology to the challenge of climate. No one is pursuing that with the kind of fervor necessary. It has to exceed what we did in the Sputnik years. It has to exceed the space race. It has to exceed the military race. If we do that, we'll find the battery storage. We'll find the cheap production of hydrogen. So I think there are clearly a whole set of things, not the least of which is global health, on which we will only survive and thrive on this planet if we coordinate multilaterally. There are just huge opportunities there, Berger. I, I will now move to the mayor of Helsinki, Jan Vapavori, also former minister in the Finnish government. Jan, thank you for joining us from Helsinki. Finland is one of the countries with the lowest amount of infected people per capita uh, in uh, the world. Thank you, President. Thank you, Borgen. The strategy of the city of Helsinki is become the most functional city in the world, COVID has actually underlined this. So what we aim to be is to become and be safe, clean, resilient, smart, sustainable at the same time. So you really need a comprehensive approach to city management. It's about being predictable, reliable, and, and fair for everyone equally. It's about a, a city that works in, in all circumstances. If you take then COVID, it is a health crisis, social crisis, and economic crisis at the same time. So it's, a, it's quite evident that you need a holistic, systemic, and comprehensive response approach to response and, and, and rebuilding. The strength of a functional city is that in a time of a crisis, you don't have a substantial need to change your processes, and actually that disruption to normal is, is minimal. One of the most fundamental elements of any social contract is security. And states and governments, in essence, are promising security to their citizens. And I think since the killing of George Floyd in the US, what's become apparent is that an element of the population in that country and elements around the world are feeling that they're not getting that security from the police who are supposed to be delivering it for them. And someone who's really in probably one of the best positions to observe that and, uh, and comment on it is Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, who leads the Center for Policing Equity uh, and is also a professor at John Jay College in New York. I have to say, uh, while the framing is around safety and the public contract, what we're seeing is way bigger than public safety. You don't have people taking to the streets by the millions in a country because of a single murder, because of two, because of three, because of four, because of the thousand police-involved homicides a year for the past five years that hasn't gone anywhere in the United States because the million use of forces. What you're seeing in the United States is a past due notice for the unpaid debts owed to black Americans for the last 401 years. Policing always is the spark. Public safety is always just the spark. But there's a reason why so soon after that public lynching, you see people pulling down the statues made to commemorate heroes of the side that's, that fought to secure and to promote slavery in the United States. My friend Nicole Hannah-Jones just put out a piece in the New York Times today talking about the need for a conversation of reparations. That's what you're hearing most sort of intellectual leaders talk about right now. But that conversation has been going on in black circles since emancipation. 
whether or not we actually get there in terms of a serious adult conversation about what it would require on um, the logistics of it, uh, that's still an open question. And I have to say, I don't count myself as particularly optimistic, but only because I'm a student of history, right? We're talking about the theft of labor, the theft of land, the theft of bodies that's never been fully accounted for. I am literally the leading expert on racism and policing in the world. It's a very humble brag and a very low bar. I can step over it. I can't tell you how many people in the United States are killed by law enforcement every year. This is not just a U.S. issue. The ways in which we enforce inequality with state violence, that's a global issue. And for folks who are leaders of corporates, you can drive that. You are in a position to demand that the, the countries where you do business have an accounting for the ways in which they've stolen labor to amass, amass wealth. That doesn't need to be seen as activist or controversial. When you do an injury, you have to pay a debt. When a company doesn't pay its debt, it goes into foreclosure. We understand this among people who have things. It's just there's so many people who don't, who don't have a political voice and certainly don't have a corporate voice, that they can't raise it to demand the things that all of the rest of us would require of a functioning society. And I don't know whether or not I'm feeling optimistic right now. So in the United States in 1954, there was a landmark Supreme Court case that said that segregation in public accommodations like schools was illegal. We now live in a country where racial segregation in schools is greater than it was in 1954. I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that we have options, we have choices in front of us that could really make a difference. Bob Morris from PwC. Bob, thanks for joining. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're dealing with it at PwC as a global business, but also about the kinds of things that you're telling the businesses you deal with, how to go about addressing this need and how to bring those disadvantaged and those underserved communities into the workforce? Well, the business community, organizations that are out there, no matter how large or small, exist for three reasons. One is to, as a CEO, a management team, manage their business in order to do well, to do good. Second is they've got to be much more thoughtful, engaging with and responsive to broader group of stakeholders. And that includes society overall, including this, those that are disadvantaged. And last but not least is they've got to contribute to society in a more positive way. And the world will be the judge with respect to that on a going forward basis. So just like we're talking about this restart in PwC, what we've been talking to those same CEOs about is the fact that they've got to repair damage that's been done in the past. They have to rethink what they stand for and what their purpose is, reconfigure their processes, their assets, et cetera, and restart. But equally as important is report to demonstrate the progress and the comparability of one another to demonstrate that in fact they get it, they're listening, they're learning, they're adjusting, and they're demonstrating different results and through that reporting can be held accountable for the progress that we're looking everybody to make. So let's step back, what do they need to do? First, they've gotta actually enhance the skill sets of their own employees to remain relevant, to be productive, to actually have a return such that they can contribute that to society. Otherwise they can't exist, they can't be relevant, they won't perform well. Second is you've got the bigger issue in terms of job opportunities. Is it going to be there and especially those that are displaced right now? So what does the business community do in that regard? And then on a societal basis, we've got education systems that are A, not useful, not productive, not effective, and we have millions and tens and hundreds of millions that don't have access to that opportunity for education. So the business community needs to step up. Back in October, we launched a new skill, New World New Skills initiative where we committed $3 billion to get people's skills uplifted, to be relevant. That goes to the current employees to ensure sustainability of employment, 
and opportunities. It goes to those that are disadvantaged to create those opportunities for them. Geraldine Manchier from Royal DSM, thanks for joining us. One of the things we've seen in the COVID-19 crisis is that women in the workforce seem to have borne the brunt of the burden of care in family environments, in home environments. How do we ensure that coming out of COVID-19 into what's looking like a very tough economy, that women aren't left behind in the reset, in the relaunch process? I'm actually an optimist when it comes to gender. The lockdown was a great equalizer. People were acknowledged for what they have, not only in terms of constraints at work, but also at home. So what we realized was that effectively working from home meant that it was very clear that young couples with children, uh, the children were there. And we were accommodating a lot more for that reality than we were doing only six months ago. Six months ago, it was easy to ignore it and say, we take equal measures in the way that we work with everyone. When, when it's actually there and visible, you accommodate a lot more in terms of timing of calls, workload, etc. The other big equalizer is flexibility. Now, if you see the biggest barrier to women in the workplace, it has been for a long time the imperative to be on site, the 9 to 5 or 9 to 10 p.m., depending on the kind of jobs, etc. And here, suddenly, we're having to reinvent the workplace. And I really mean that. Right now, the biggest question of our workforce, and we have nearly 25,000 employees around the world, is how are we going to change our workplace because of what we've just lived? And everybody expects us to change that, not to go back to what it was. And those most excited about that change are actually the women uh, because they have sensed and they have lived more flexibility than they've ever had before. Geraldine, thank you for that. I want to turn next to Sir Mohammed Jafar. Your enterprise is based in Kuwait, it's based in the Gulf. You've done a great deal of work on speaking out for migrant workers and their rights. How does this post-COVID-19 moment give us an opportunity to give them a fair share or a fair stake in the social contract if we're rebuilding? Thanks, uh, Adrian. Just to put things in context, um, I want to touch on the demographics of the Gulf. If you take the United Arab Emirates, You've got maybe 90% of the population is not indigenous, but is uh, expats or migrants. It goes down to 80% in Qatar, but you know, 75% in Kuwait, 40% in Saudi Arabia. So we've got about 30 million people in total who are living in, a, in these countries. So the demographics is very unusual. You know, you've got a native population of 20%, but you've got 80% who are living in those countries. These are the jobs that they have are everything. You know, your gas worker, your oil workers, the cab drivers, the nurses, the doctors, the plumbers. They have been very hardly hit by COVID because the way they live, the communities in where they live have aided in the transmission of the disease. So they're very densely populated. This is one of the things that really needs to be addressed as we reset the social contract. Now, people are vital to your economy. We need to examine whether we are going to do the things that will allow us to mitigate the next pandemic because the cost that COVID has brought upon the Gulf, like the rest of the world, is extremely high. So are we going to learn something from this or not? Thank you so much for that. And you talked uh, very importantly about safety nets and probably one of the, the, the 
deepest and smartest thinkers on that topic is Hilary Cotton, who whose book uh, Radical Help was published two years ago. Coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, how can governments and businesses act to ensure that safety nets are there? What do you think their priorities ought to be? Three things have come together. So one thing is, I mean, immediately before the crisis, I was working in sort of so-called left-behind communities with workers, manufacturers, grave diggers, carers. I think the most important thing is that most workers already feel their lives are very precarious and that safety nets don't work. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we're facing huge unemployment. And we know that unemployment is a relational issue. It doesn't affect everybody the same. It's going to fall according to race, according to age, according to class. And we have to think differently about that. And then the third thing, I think, is transition, because we're facing an ecological catastrophe. So it isn't just about going back to work or working. It's about where are you working and how can we transition out of often very well-paid, good jobs that are in kind of so-called dirty industries into smart green work. We're also going to have new work. We can't think what the skills are for. And so facing these kind of three crises, what we see is... A set of institutions which, as Senator Kerry said, were designed after the Second World War that are very mass production. So they're very linear. They still imagine that everybody goes to school, gets a job and retires, which, of course, you know, being out of work is the new normal or between work. But also they're very individual. They still think about who is the individual worker and what skills do they need? So what I think we're beginning to see emerge and what I hope we're going to invest in, because there is a lot of investment, there's a lot of money flowing at the moment. And the question is investment in what? are new systems which are much more horizontal and much more collaborative. I mean, they're kind of digital in their kind of culture. And so that means the kind of things we'll talk about is how can you have different sorts of benefits that wrap around you at different stages of your life? They continue with you. They're portable. We've just heard about the challenges of migrant workers, for example. They're very relational. They understand that your opportunities depend on who you know and where you live and how you can kind of connect and bridge those relationships. They're about high quality learning and they're also about integrating care and work, which I really hope will be one of the big resets in this century, because otherwise women in particular are not going to have any of these opportunities. Thanks for that. I'm going to close by just turning to Sadia Zahidi and asking her how you can become involved in some of the work that you've heard about today. Sadia. Sure. Thank you. I think, Adrian, from everything we've just heard on this call, we will remain in the realm of anger, paralysis, or feel-good initiatives or a theory if we don't take a disciplined and structured approach to the Great Reset that brings all of the right collaborators together. And that is what we are trying to do at the World Economic Forum when it comes to redesigning this social contract in the midst of this crisis. We announced just five months ago a major initiative for this decade, the reskilling revolution, to impact one billion people through better education, better skills, and better jobs. And all of that has to apply the lens of power as well. As we do that, there are four key areas we'll be working on. One is delivering education 4.0. So a completely different approach to the content and delivery of education. I think we have seen that it is possible to do this online in the last few months, and we now need to grab that opportunity and get access to better and equal education into the hands of everyone. We've set up a council to deliver this. If you'd like to join, please come and join us. Second, 
we need to take much more seriously the reskilling and upskilling agenda that several people have talked about. There are 3 billion people in the world's workforce that will not go back to basic education systems. They need support today, especially as the fourth industrial revolution has become accelerated through this crisis. And in addition to that, we've inherited an unemployment crisis. That is a second area where we're working with multiple countries, multiple industries. If you are a business leader, if you are a union leader, if you're a shaper, if you are a government, come and join us. The third element is around social safety nets. I think we've seen through this crisis that the countries that perform the best or that have the biggest opportunity to have a relatively rapid recovery are the ones that were actually investing in those social safety nets. We put together a lot of those policy experiments and we'll be putting out as a start a number of those thought pieces to try to provide a script to other countries as to how to get there. And then the fourth element is around the wages and job creation agenda. We all saw who were the essential workers at the front lines of this crisis. And those happen to be consistently the people that are the most underpaid. So we're going to be mapping out the jobs of tomorrow, but also working on a wholly new wages and living wage agenda over the coming um, months. Again, please come and join us and we look forward to working with you. Thank you, Sadia. From all of us here in Geneva, from Berger, Sadia and myself, a huge thank you to our panelists, John Kerry, Philip Goff, Hilary Cottam, Sir Mohammed Jafar, Bob Moritz, and Geraldine Matchett. We will be back with the next Great Reset Dialogue on August 26th, counting down to an annual meeting in January 2021, where we want to explore in great detail the issues around the Great Reset. Thanks to all of you for your time and engagement and from Geneva. Have a good rest of your day wherever you are. Thank you. <laughs>